Well, well, well. Look what the cat dragged in today. We have a couple of us together in the same location. This is Woodworking is Bullshit, the podcast. I'm your host, Paul Jasper, and I'm joined by my two Thirst Trap co-hosts, Eric Curtis and Mary Sai, professional thirst traps. Uh, Eric is a professional uh, furniture maker, and uh, Mary is a product designer by day and part-time woodworker by night. Myself, I'm a scientist by day, uh, woodworker by night. This podcast, as I may have said in the last time, is a bit different. We're not going to tell you how to make things, but we're going to explore why we make things, uh, where we draw our creativity, how we figure out design. So this this podcast is all about creativity, art, and design. Uh, for those of you who are looking to learn how to cut better dovetails, you probably want to tune out now. With that or being said... Tuned. We won't cover it, but stay tuned anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. I suppose you can listen if you really want to. Um, so today what we have, um, <clears throat> we, we're going to start with a question like we do every week. And today's question is, where do you derive your creativity from? This is a tough one um, because there's so many places where we der derive our creativity from. And a lot of us are scared to do it in the first place. So I would like to start by poking the bear and listing five reasons why I think woodworkers avoid creativity and the original <laughs> design. So let's start by hurting some feelings. Number one, <laughs> I, I think we avoid original design um, because woodworking execution is so difficult. We could spend decades just learning the how. And so you get... 10, 20 years into the how, and you realize you've ignored the why or the what. You've been just copying because the, the design was just a means to an end. Uh, number two, I think there's a healthy fear of failure and a lot of ego we have to get beyond. That's definitely going to poke the bear. Number three, uh, we love to prioritize learning technical things like mortise and tenon and dovetail, like how to cut better dovetails and you know, I, I was joking about that at the front of the show. How many times have you seen an article about that, right? How many times have you seen an article about how to design well? I mean, it's like non-existent. So that's my third reason. We don't prioritize how to learn it. The fourth is we immediately disqualify ourselves. So often we say, well, I'm not an artist. Like the artists are like these real talented motherfuckers out like somewhere in the in the you know somewhere out there it's not me i'm not telling i i'm not so we disqualify ourselves and we have imposter syndrome so we don't even give ourselves a chance and the last reason the fifth is this feeling of hopelessness it's all been done before i can't i can't make a a unique um contribution it's all been done before and uh i think that sort of discouragement and hopelessness Again, it, we're betraying ourselves. Or it's almost like self-sabotage. Uh, why we don't. I think it has all been done before. And I think <laughs> that's all right. I think it's fine that it's all been done before. I think, in fact, that that gives you the encouragement and the freedom that you need. This is speaking uniquely from my perspective. That nothing you do fucking matters. So get over yourself. And just make a thing. And take a chance. Because it may fail, but you may learn a thing. And I think like uh, the the best way that this was ever summed up for me was my teacher, Alan Lewis, said he spent, you know, 30 years of his career trying to create an original piece of furniture. And finally, he made this thing and he was like, this is it. Nobody's ever made this before. It's perfectly contemporary. It's beautifully executed. This is the thing. And not a month later, he was flipping through fine woodworking and they had a historical uh, section and he looked upon the thing and he was like, that's my fucking piece. Like, and this was from like 1750. And so like, there's just, there's nothing new. Well, all right. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think simple elements, like there's simple building blocks. They've all been done before. And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, while Mary coughs, uh, I'll make a, 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 an analogy with music. Every note has been played, but there are still unique combinations and um, melodies that haven't been played. The combinations are novel. 
right? from a the, technical perspective, you're you're mathematically not wrong. However, so, those wait, 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 wait. Done. okay, all right, fine, all right, okay. <laughs> we Back did. Up. We did. Bitch. There. <laughs> we did talk about this in the last episode. Just okay, but we're going to talk about it again because that's what we're talking about. So, um, so while. A, a, a part of like a drawer might not be unique. A door might not be unique, but some arrangement of drawers and doors and shapes and curves and textures, that particular arrangement may very well be unique. It's almost impossible to know. So I, I still think it's possible, but it's more about combinations being unique, not the you, the individual elements. Yeah, I would agree. I think I'm maybe leaning more towards Paul on this because <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, no, you're not. No, I'm not at all. <laughs> Eric's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, get over it, Eric. Uh, no, I agree. I think that people learn specific techniques because they want to be able to put them together and form their own idea. And like, obviously, there's going to be inspiration, maybe subconscious, maybe some, some not, some conscious. Uh, but I think, yeah, people want to learn skills and they practice technical skills so that they can apply it in some larger context. And I think that the more you make things and more you design things and more you practice and try to use that goal of designing something, the more you can potentially achieve it. But I don't know. There's not really a repertoire of all furniture that's ever been made. So does anyone actually know? <laughs> I think, I think the music analogy is a helpful one though, because like the, there is to Paul's point and to Mary's point, the who probably has the most understanding of you know musicality and music theory among us however there is mathematically a combination of notes that hasn't been played before almost guaranteed and yet we exist within a culture and a a framework that prefers certain combinations of notes over others and so if you start playing uh, a chromatic descending scale in a pop song people are going to be like why are you playing jazz you know like there, there there are things that belong in certain pockets and so in furniture you can take your dovetails your mortise and tenons uh and and create arts and crafts you have the vernacular to create a certain aesthetic of work and so you work within that frame and it may not be new but it may be new to you right like this is this is the problem in comedy too, right? Like you watch a kid's movie, you're like, holy Jesus, how do these children think this is funny? Like what was, what was the, do like the dog movie with George Lopez that came out like 10 years ago? I always think of that one specifically. <laughs> like this is the stupidest movie ever. And yet children loved it because it's the first time they saw that, that skit, you know? So I think, I think maybe we may be a little too self-congratulatory in our own exploratory processes, and not give mm, people the benefit of the doubt that when they take a plan from the internet and they they make it a through mortise and tenon to expose a wedged tenon on the outside, like that is a design choice that they're making. It mm. may not be designed from whole cloth, but that is a design choice. Yeah. Okay. So are we talking about something that's just never been created before? Because like, sure, I can, there can be stuff that's never been created before, but it looks terrible for a reason. Like there's, a reason that people have good design and it, it is subjective by people and preferences and like styles, etc. But like for the most part, I don't know if you can make something and if it's ugly as shit, it's still original, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's like the point. You just kind of start from that and like, that's your original first design. And then you start, you know, improving off of that, but it gives you a sense of like what it means to design something that you haven't seen before. So if I could summarize what you're saying is don't let that discourage you. Pursue your own versions yeah, of design. Exactly. Don't, don't, don't feel that hopelessness and discouragement. Yeah, I How think about, people are afraid, like you had mentioned. People are afraid to design because they're like, oh, it's going to look really bad. I should rely on like my influence. Yeah, let, let's go right to that one. Fear of failure mm -hmm. and your ego. Let's talk about ego. Do you guys have a healthy ego around your designs? I mean, I think I have a healthy ego in life. You know? <laughs> I, will not, I will not disagree at all. <laughs> no, I think it is It is hard, though. So, like, from, from my perspective, as a full-time professional, the, the goal is to make objects that the client will like. And I have a weird, unique process where 
I don't allow that much input from the client. I give them mm -hmm. an idea. I give them a rough guide of where it's going to go. And then it's a, like, sometimes it's a roll of the dice. And so there is the question of how far can I push the client and they'll be happy? And how far can I push myself without alienating the client? Right. Cause that's, that's a real thing that you have to contend with. Um, as far as my own like play pieces, I don't give a shit if they're bad. Like I will do dumb shit just to see what happens because those there is built in um, acceptance of failure or the risk of failure in those moments. But those, you know, those are boxes and tiny sculptures and things I can do in a weekend or a few days. You know, mm -hmm. it's different from spending a month or two months or if you're a hobbyist in your garage, six months on a piece and risk failure. That's devastating. Hey, Mary, how do you deal with your your ego? Uh, I think it actually takes me a little bit of time for my ego to come through. I definitely have one, but uh, as you guys yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I mean, you guys probably know that I I definitely self doubt a lot, and I try to, and I overthink. I can definitely be insecure. So for me, like a lot of times, it's just the design is not good. It's not good. It's not good. And then once I see it, once I start making it, I think I see it visualizing and it's easier for me to see something in person in like physical form. And then like, yeah, I think this is like actually going to be really good. And then at the end, I'm like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> do you think about as you're making it, do you think about whether other people will like it or just whether you like it? I definitely think about both. Um, I think whether I like, okay, so I will not design something unless I like it at least a little bit or not even a little bit, like a, a good amount. Uh, I don't even want to start something because I, uh, we were talking about this before. Like I, I am able to make things so slowly. I want to make sure that since I'm so slow, I have the time to kind of get to a design that I'm happy with. I won't just like be like, Oh, that's good enough. I'm like not totally happy, but I'm just going to uh, make it. So I, that's my process. I guess I want to be happy with the design at least for the most part before I start. So you've minimized your chance of failure up front. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. But you know, things happen and things yeah. change and mistakes are made. So sometimes the design has to change and All right. that's my failure. I'm gonna how, look, look, how, how much of that do you think though is your personality versus your training as an architect? What do you mean? That, that, planning process and the aversion to the risk of failure. Cause I imagine oh, an architect doesn't yeah. have the luxury of risk. No, of definitely not. Right. So how much of that has played into it versus how much of that is just Mary's side? I don't know. It's probably a mix of both. Uh, I'm definitely someone who enjoys planning things in general. And like, yes, as an architect, you have to make sure everything is structurally sound. Everything works. Otherwise people will die. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I can't really tell. I don't know. There's like a divide, but there's a reason why I was drawn to architecture and there's a reason why I like to plan things out. I like to model things. And I, I, you've seen, I do way too many sketches. And yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. It's probably both. So while we're hammering on Mary, let's, uh, let's hammer on another <laughs> point. So Mary, you said to us at one point in our group chat, on Instagram, oh, no. which is private, by the way. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's a safe space. You were one of the people who's like, I don't think I'm an artist now that I think about it. I think I'm yeah. a designer. And you said that. And yeah. I sort of, I, I've been sort of wondering why you said that. Uh, because I focus more, well, one, I am a, a product designer for my first job. So my, my life revolves so much around design in general, and that is for a client. You have to be aware mm. of uh, what you what are you contributing, and that brings value to someone else. It's not just a mm. one-way road, kind of, of like, here's something that I've created, and this is my like way of getting this out of my head, et cetera. Um, design, is, for me, is more product focus like i'm solving a problem mm. in, in these areas especially as in opposed like my to eric life. who doesn't even welcome the customer's input half the time zero <laughs> i will give them i will give them as minimal feedback as possible i make them feel like they have input that's my job as i'm just joking <laughs> I, I, he does it's not gaslighting <laughs> like i will this is what my my process with a client is Tell me what are the must-haves, right? What are the dimensions that you want me to hit? Specific dimensions, if there are some. Tell me if you have a preference of wood species. 
and tell me if there are pieces, whether in my portfolio or in, in another uh, a place of inspiration that you prefer that I can work off of. That's about all of the input that they have on the piece. And then it's, yeah. you have to believe me that I'm going to make the best piece I can in the time I'm making it. Because if you don't trust me, then like go to somebody else who's just going to make what you want. And they do trust you, Eric. I think they do. But I think they that do. is different from you from working with clients who have very specific demands yes. of what you're putting in front of them. Yeah. And like, I think I, I like to try to bridge the gap more because, because I focus more on design and client work in general. Like, in woodworking, when I work with a client, I try to do more of what you do and which and like input my own voice. I have like a certain aesthetic and style. So I want to make sure that comes through. But I also will always send a sketch and a rendering or something to the client and be like, this is what I like. This is what I want to do. Like, what do you think? What are your inputs? And that way, it's very much a collaboration. It's very much like 50-50. Um, yeah. See, my... I know a lot of people work like that. And I think there's a lot of value in that. My, the, the issue I've run into in that process and for any clients past or future, I'm not disparaging you. I love you. I appreciate everything <laughs> that you allow me to do in this life. However, I found that many clients, most of the time don't know what they want. And so they Agreed. have, they, have, they yeah. have a feeling of what they want, yes. but they don't have the vocabulary or the visual uh, library to kind of understand and articulate what they want. And so they're yeah. just kind of relying on you to be like, give me that feeling of this other piece. And it's your job as the artist or as the designer to dissect the design elements and principles in there and recreate that in a different piece. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think I definitely, I, I do that, but I also still send it over to them. <laughs> to be like, do you like it? Yeah, Eric. I don't do that. <laughs> What do you do, Paul? Uh, well, um, me, uh, I used to, uh, sort of like Eric, that I would ask what are the must-haves and I'd work my own vision within those confines. And funny enough, sometimes having some confines actually stimulates creativity. Uh -huh. It's weird because a blank piece of paper is just a bit too much, but uh -huh. actually having a few rules and you come up with all these cool things that can fit in those rules. So that's sort of a counterintuitive point about design that having some limitations actually may stimulate design. For um, sure. Uh, and lately I, I got a little worn out of that after five years or so. So I basically stopped taking commissions for a small time and I've just been making whatever the hell I want. So I'm back to the, the blank paper and I'll tell you, it's a blessing and a curse because it's really your own voice, but I go through these real peaks and valleys of motivation. Like I won't go in the shop for a week because yeah. I'm just like, Oh, you know, I don't feel like it. And then I'll be so hot to trot about what I'm working on. It's weird, you know, whereas having client deadlines keeps you more regular. Um, so each each way I work ha it seems to have their own unique challenges. Um, I do want to put it back to Mary, though. There was another point that I think, Mary, you can actually uniquely contribute to, which is, look, there's a million books on how to cut dovetails and how to flatten boards and how to glue ups. Where is the education around design? I mean, it must exist. It must be in art schools. It's certainly not in the woodworking community. And I guess I'm asking, where is that education? Is it easily available to get to? And why isn't it part of the woodworking community? Uh, that's a very loaded question. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to sound so bougie. <laughs> Do it. Sound bougie. Be an elitist. Dude, we are what we are. Bougie the shit out. <laughs> yeah i mean i can only speak from personal experience i don't know if this is the case but i in my opinion or in my experience i have found the best way and easiest way to go to school for it and maybe you don't have to go to school but having um mentors and people who have been in the field really help you and guide you and it, but it's really important that you find the right people like the right people whose explorations and research are things that resonate with you and um for me i went to design school and i went for uh it was called master of design which is extremely generic but it was generic for a purpose Damn like bougie all right <laughs> <laughs> no, you? Okay. <laughs> I, I can't. Please, please master, continue. Master, please yeah. continue. Speaking of it's been Eric is being like, oh, it's like bougie person here. Oh That's God. why we're friends. Oh my God. Uh, 
yeah. But for me, like I went to school and like they kept it generic uh, because they want people to be able to branch out. So it was people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Like I was mm. an architect. But they were product designers, former um, like toy designers and people who had never done design before. So uh, the idea is to like, I don't know, stimulate your design thinking. And it's not just confined to what you were before. Like if you are interested in um, product designer <coughs> uh, UX design, they gave us a way to um, do that through multiple projects. There was just like a large range of exploration. So then you can figure out, you know, what, this is what I'm interested in. This is like okay. a path that I really wanted to uh, like dive deep. So I think okay, that so people can do that anyway, like not going to school. It's just, you have to be able to spend the time and like do the projects and also talk to other people who could but give Mary, you like, Let's think about like who, who's in the woodworking field or like who might be listening to this. Mm-hmm. What percentage of them are going to be able to go to school for design? Like 0%. Yeah, like I know. tiny, right? So what yeah. what are we left with? What can we do? Like I've looked for continuing edu- education classes online about design and I can't seem to find yeah. the right thing. Yeah, it's really difficult. The the thing is, I think I come, well, I don't know. What kind of classes have you been looking for? I mean, because- like generalized design. Like can, is there a way to learn the just like the basic rules of wood movement and joinery? Is there an, like a, a similar thing or you know, an analogous thing in design. I think you have to be more specific though, because like if I'm thinking about my UX and product design world, which is all digital, that's not as applicable. But if you're talking about industrial design, I think that is probably my biggest influence. You, you like really focus on uh, what are like, it gets so granular. Like what is the, the kind of curve? There's like so many different numbers and letters for like, this is the radius of these specific curves. Apple has the same curve. I forget what it's called for all of their products. And it's like, very, you know, continuous and makes makes their brand what it is. So I really like industrial design as an inspiration. Um, architecture, I think, is also related. It's all these like physical design projects. And I think that's where the best inspiration comes from to translate into woodworking because it hasn't been done before. It's something unique where you can take inspiration from, for me, it's usually architecture. It's like large sweeping uh, monuments and simple forms and making that into something from wood. At least for me, I don't know. Maybe Eric has different idea because well, he went to CFC, so also bougie. I'm just saying it is bougie. I'm, listen, I've never denied it. It is bougie. Um, I do think that there are places to learn design. I do think it is more on the industrial scale. Hmm. Um, I I don't know that there are like continuing education classes around that because hmm. people. I, well, I think this, I think this comes back to like the history of this craft that we love and how it's evolved into the modern age, right? Because you think of artists and designers and you think the media that those people inhabit are painting, sculpture, right? Music to a large extent. And these are processes. These are crafts that have been seriously altered by the advent of technology in the last hundred years. Let's take the painter, for example, right? The painter for the history of the ability to put images on a wall has been a craft, right? It's been the craft of storytelling and it's been the craft of actually painting. Renaissance painters were not considered artists. They were considered craftsmen. Renaissance sculptors were considered craftsmen. They were workmen. They were blue collar. And then you have the advent of photography. And all of a sudden you don't need craftsmen to paint a painting of these people anymore because you can snap an image and now you want to hire artists who are capable of creating these images with their hands and their imaginations that stir emotion and stir experience and i wonder if because there hasn't until recently in the last 20 years or so been this thing in furniture and woodworking our craft has largely been the same since the advent of the table saw and even then, that's just an advancement of hand tools. But now with the advent of CNC's 3D mm. printing computer technology, I wonder if the same isn't going to happen to woodworking over the next hundred years. Hmm. So I I think it's just the way that we view and the general public views what we do as a craft rather than as an art, which may change over time. But hmm. in this present day, I, there there aren't really places that that teach continuing education in design because nobody's really interested in learning it. Well, like what? 
What, well, why? Why would fuck? They? What, why would what they? you said oh, is, is 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 true, and it's horrible. It's horrifying. But, like but it's also it's also a matter of of <laughs> contentment, right? So it's like let's let's be real. The vast majority of people who are hobbyist woodworkers are like white doctors and lawyers, right? Because old <laughs> old white males. Who are in their garage. Some white bearded men. Some white bearded men. Like it's, uh, we, I am the stereotype. You are the stereotype. I am the stereotype. Okay. (laughs) We are what we are. But these are people who do this as a hobby, who do this for fun and find contentment in making a thing with their hands. They have other avenues of intellectual engagement. Mm. Right. And I think that part of their brain is engaged in their work and they need a thing to engage their hands to, to feel some kind of completion, right? And I so see. I don't know that that the 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 spiritual and intellectual energy it takes to design an object and care how its place in the universe fits. I don't know that that's what they're looking for. So you, it's hard to sell a class to nobody. <laughs> wow. I, would, I don't know. I <laughs> understand what you're saying, but I do think that there are classes that do that teach you know i don't know i i still think like industrial design is what okay. i come back to because i think that industrial design is really similar to woodworking but it fills that question of how do we cre- try to create new things because like when you're a student in industrial design you first i think you first start out with uh you know creating uh prompts like working for a company or i think the Students at my school, they worked with uh, like a like a lawn care product, which seems really boring and mundane, but it immerses them first into what are the businesses in this in this field. It's not just like you being able to create whatever you want. You have to stick to guidelines, et cetera. That gives them like limitations. And then the next project would be something more interesting. Like maybe it's a car and like automotive sort of thing. And then like once they have those limitations, they can start developing their own uh, design thinking. And then I think from there, they can be a little bit more original. So mm-hmm. I feel strongly about industrial design being a really okay. good way to woodworking, I think. Okay. So um, two, two points now. The first is that I have a personal mission to convince people that they should care about design. It's like <laughs> all I talk about. It's why we started this podcast. Yeah. It's like, right. I mean, it's, I don't think it's okay that we punt on that. And I think it's lame. Uh, And I think it is way more fulfilling when you pursue both the making with your hands and the design at the same time. So it's really all I want to talk about. It's all like, I want to inspire myself to do it better. I want to inspire others to do it better. I want to be inspired to do it. uh, You know, so I think that's a hugely important topic. Um, the second point is that you've already sort of transitioned us to our next big topic, which is not why do we avoid it, but where do we go for our creativity? Mary, you've already given an answer, industrial design. That's a major source of your creativity. And you've also answered architecture. Yeah. And Ar- Eric, uh, what are your major sources of creativity when you reach into the design pouch? I, I think... There's kind of two avenues that I take. It depends on the piece. Um, One of them is how do I make a functional object as simple and elegant as possible so that it's not a practice in ego. Like your uh, latest YouTube video? Big practice in ego. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is... It, it is a hope to make an understated thing that functions and um, makes people happy. And that that requires drawing inspiration visually from other artists who have done similar work. And then, oh, and so then other it, artists, that's your answer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mm. the it, this is what I call like the George Lucas effect. Right. So people give George Lucas this all this credit for being this creative genius. And I'm like, first of all, he retold like the the same story over and over. This is a story he pulled all of, I can't remember the name of the film. Maybe you do the, the samurai film that he pulled all the visuals from. Oh, I don't know, but I know he pulled a lot of inspiration from Dune from the, for the story. Yeah. Yeah, But there's a specific samurai film that he basically, like there are clips in star Wars uh, that are shot for shot remakes Mm -hmm. of that film. Uh, and then if you look at the characters he invented on all the other planets, everybody's like, Oh my God, these aliens are so original. I'm like, 
he took an elephant head and he put it on a cat body. <laughs> like that's all. It's just an amalgamation right. of elements, right? George is going to be pissed when he re- listens to that's our fine. podcast. It's, by the way, consuming. It's fine. I'll I, I will never get out of you know the abyss after that one. I live next but... to Luca Studios. <laughs> I literally live next to it. <laughs> Tell George I said hi. He'll know what it means. Uh, so, but there, there's this, there's, it's an amalgamation of things, right? You're pulling visual elements from different sources and you're, you're smashing them together in a way that maybe somebody's done it in the past, but it's unique to you because you only are just discovering that combination of things. What are your favorite sources? Oh, they can come from anywhere. It depends on, on the object, right? So, uh, for the table I just made, it's, very clearly in the Nakashima yeah, uh, vocabulary. And so I think they've already made the perfect trestle table. And so my goal was I wanted to make a trestle table because I had this slab that fit the space that I needed it to be in. And how do I make a trestle table that's beautiful and elegant without just ripping off that specific table that they've already made? Because I think that one in and of itself, I was like, they've done it. There's no reason to do it again. They've done it but I want to do it again. So how do I do this in a way that is my own slightly different and not um, plagiarizing? I think it, uh, it bears noting that you both were at Nakashima today. Visiting we were today. both at Nakashima today. It, it was, was fantastic. So um, but I, the, the other avenue that I go down for a piece is, uh, and this one's a bit more ethereal, but I think it's just as much fun is, Like I have a philosophical concept that I want to relay. And then it's a question of how do I get the viewer of the object to engage with this piece or engage with the concept um, almost subconsciously uh, in in the way that I want them to, right? Mm -hmm. So like this desk that we're sitting at right now, it's got this spot. It's not a philosophical concept, but but it was early on in my design explorations and I wanted to make an object in a table specifically that invited the viewer to walk around at 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. And so this thing has these running lines. It's, it's moving up in this kind of spiraling fashion. I took this inspiration from a tree that I saw out on campus and it just kind of gnarled and bent over. And so the day that I finished it, I hadn't yet put finish on it, but it was up on an assembly bench. I was up at CFC doing a fellowship in 2018. I think it was. And it's an open campus. So some guy just walked in um, to the studio. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. We didn't really acknowledge one another. He was just by himself walking around, looking around. And he walked up to the table and he stopped and he paused and he slowly walked 360 degrees around the table and then nodded to himself and smiled and walked off. <laughs> didn't say a word to me. And I was like, I won. I did the thing. I That's did awesome. the thing worked the way that I wanted it to work. I like uh, that. So a philosoph a, a philosophical concept was the starting point. Yeah, it was this idea of like how do I how do I get somebody to engage with this piece uh, in all dimensions, right? Not just like a normal table yeah. where you go front view, side view, three quarter view. Great, um, oh. you know. Yeah. Or or like this liquor cabinet that I made over um, COVID where it was it has these ripples on the front of the cabinet, and the that. idea was try to try to express visually this idea of the the reverberations of our of the physical interactions we have with one another obviously because we were also isolated during covid um but an unintended unintended consequence of that was i made what ended up being like a very clear handle for a door that doesn't have a knob or a handle on it and so it's always so interesting to me to watch people walk up to that and, and handle it in the exact same spot. You can open that door along the entire length of the door, but everybody grabs it right there. And it's just one of those intuitive human things where you're like, why do people do that? And how can I get them to do that in some other way on some other piece? Was that Escher inspired? It must, it must have been. I don't, the same thing. I don't know where I pulled that, that ripple from. I was just really into texture at the moment. But I think, yeah, it could have definitely been like uh in an extension of Eshrick because yeah. I've been a fan of Eshrick's work for a decade. Well what I what I love that you said, Eric, is how you were using philosophical either ideas or questions or you were using ideas to guide the design. 
ideas that are much bigger than furniture. It wasn't an idea about furniture. It was like, oh, it's COVID and reverberation or togetherness or whatever you had as your idea. Like you were using that to fuel your furniture design. Like that to me is super cool because when people see or hear that that is what guided it, it just, you understand it in a whole new sense. And I think many painters do that. You always hear about like, you know, contemporary artists, like what, what were they going for with this piece? There's always a a psychological underpinning. I think that comes back to the, that feeling I was talking about with clients before is they want a feeling. And my job is to to provide them that feeling. I, I don't think it's dissimilar. It's like, I had this feeling, I had this thought. And then the next question is, how do I express that visually without That's so words, cool. right? It's, That's right. it's bringing, bringing back to, to music. Like it's the same thing It's like, you have a feeling an emotion, a moment. How do you express that sonically without the use of words? And we right. built in Western society, this, this vocabulary of musical notes and combinations that allow, like the moment you hear that halftone dissonance, you're like, some shit's about to happen. I don't know what, but it makes me anxious. And that, like, that's purposeful. And you use that in those moments. And I think there are certain design tools and principles that allow you to accomplish that same thing. The question is, how do I get Paul Jasper to feel that same thing that I'm trying to get Mary Cy to feel that I'm well, trying to get somebody that I don't know? To, good to luck. Feel? I'm dead inside. So that'd be tough. <laughs> Um, so as you know, I'm a scientist, right? So one of the things I like to do is ask questions. Uh, and that to me has been an unexpected source of design inspiration for myself. So, um, you know, there's a lot of questions I think that people are afraid to ask because the answer seems obvious, but if you actually ask it anyway, you realize very quickly that the answer is actually not obvious. You might think it's obvious and it's not. And it has led to like extremely interesting avenues of research. So I've learned this lesson to not ask, don't avoid what you think are dumb questions. And so I asked a simple question. This led to a whole design thrust for like five years. The question was, do humans prefer certain shapes? That was it. Mm. Yes, I don't definitely. Know. Yeah. Mary, do they? Yes. This absolutely. is okay. character design. How do you know that? There's been a lot of research done on. Yes. There's, yeah, there's been a lot of research done. Like, look at any industrial design or like product design company. Like, why do people like yep. the iPhone? Yep. Why? And, the, and then, like, once the iPhone was invented, why did so many other companies do exactly the same mm-hmm. thing? And this isn't even just physical. Like there's trends that happen even in uh, product UX design too. In the nineties, everything was rect- was like super square okay. 90 degrees. And then we <laughs> overcorrected in my opinion and went extremely round. And now we're in the middle. We're kind of like still kind of, you know, rectangular, but with like really small corner okay. bevels, things like that. So Mary has <laughs> gone into exactly what the, what, so you said there's research on it. There absolutely is. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, let's find this research. I have an account on PubMed. I search the research, you know, I search research papers all the time. Let's find these. And after like a, about an hour, I found it. I got myself on a line of research that is like human preference for shapes. And mm-hmm. I guess the, the no duh is like, why aren't we using this information to guide our designs? Like, <laughs> hmm, if you want people to like what you make it, so that they buy it, shouldn't you know what the human preferences are at a biological level. Okay. So who's going to do the research though? Because I think people rely on, well, that's the thing. There are people (laughs) who are interested in that and they're willing to do the research, but a lot of other people like in fashion, they allow the larger companies or like the experts to do that research and let it, yeah. Let it trickle down to the everyday person. And then that's what, that's how they I think that's, I think we shouldn't avoid that. I mean, look, it's as simple as going to pubmed.com and searching like search terms. Anyway, I found a whole line of papers. I read them. And the question is, and like, this is so crude. Do we like prefer sharp angles or curves? Curves. Rectilinear or curvilinear? Curvilinear. Uh, Eric, what's the answer? We're the human body. It's curvilinear. Mary, what's your answer? 
Yeah, I think I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's 100% curvilinear every time. And the way they test this is very interesting. They'll take, for example, two rooms and they'll deck it out with two chairs and a, a desk and a window and a light and a plant. And these two rooms will have the exact same elements and the exact same arrangement, but one has all squares and one nothing has a sharp corner in it. It's all curves, but everything else is the same. And they ask people, hey, what do you prefer? And you have to ask people, you know, you can't ask them, uh, you know, do they like rectilinear first or curvilinear second? Because the order in which you ask them could be influencing uh -huh. the answer. So you have uh -huh. to sort of, um, you know, uh, randomize uh, which you ask them first. Anyway, time and time and time again through the 70s, through the 1980s, to the 2000s, all these papers of rectilinear versus curvilinear, the answer is undeniably curvilinear. And then I look around and I'm like, why is everything fucking square? Yep. Like yep. everything's a fucking square. Why? Because it's easy. Because it's easy. Because it's easy. That's it. Yeah. It's easy to make. And look yeah. at our shops. Everything's set up to make everything square. Yeah. Flat, square, ninety degrees. Everything. Uh, funny enough, though, cars now. There's nothing square on them. They're they're curved on every surface. I was gonna bring cars up when you were talking about the the balance between curve <laughs> and square because they were. They were square. They were. Back in the 70s, 80s, yeah. everything was very angular. And then yeah. we got to the 90s and we were like, shit, wave of the future. Let's go back to round because it was round in the 50s. And then we got to the early 2000s, late 2000s. And we were like, this looks old and dated. And now the, now they're in between. Like they're yeah, curvilinear exactly. forms with these yep. soft peaks because the eye also likes lines. And this is part of the reason why furniture, in my opinion, is not exclusively curvilinear because you have to impart lines for your eye to follow. If a thing is a blob, your eye goes, okay, I don't know what to do with this. If you have a blob with a line that's drawing you around somewhere, your eye has something to do. It moves somewhere around the piece, just like the human body, because everything comes <laughs> it sounds back. sounds very sensual, Eric. But it is sensual, right? Like everything comes down <laughs> to how, how can you replicate the curvilinear form of the human body. <laughs> this is why we prefer balance as well, because you're a symmetrical person. Uh, if the you have face Mary is making right now is amazing. She's, she's uncomfortable. She, listen, she grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Hey. She is uncomfortable <laughs> with the acknowledgement that we are sexual beings. Like Excuse it's fine. Me. <laughs> Eric, you are getting oh yourself in deeper and deeper. <laughs> Oh my god, I kill you. <laughs> uh, says the okay. Well, you are the person who has the sculpture of a naked lady downstairs in your living room. So. I, have, I have multiple sculptures that are very sexual around this house. I admit it. I like uh, I, it's not my there's, fault. Okay? There's oh, so many god. things I want to say right now, and I'm <laughs> not going to say it. So coming back to the topic before we completely degenerate. Uh, I decided to do a very non-scientific uh, experiment based on this research. I made, I've been making square boxes. I'm like, let's make a curve box. Uh, okay. And I'll see. I'll see if like people go crazy. And they did. I made this stupid little, it's not stupid. I don't mean to. <laughs> it's like a stadium box. And I call it a stadium because it's a stadium shape, which is two half circles connected by lines. Uh, people went nuts for it. The uptake was unbelievable. I, I was really shocked. Now it's it's not it's anecdotal and it's not scientifically controlled and I didn't measure things, but whatever. Um, but to me, it it was undeniable proof that, yeah, you know, if you could translate some of these curve shapes into furniture or forms, it definitely stimulates people. Um, and I should be listening to this research. And that stadium shape has been i've been using it again and again and again you got you know eric you've seen it yeah. a thousand yeah. times over uh upside down left right horizontal a whiskey cabinet big small in between so just in terms of when you feel stuck with design and like where oh where you know where do i start designing from this is just literally a question what shape do humans prefer and i've been chasing that the answer or working with that answer as a design thrust for like five years and it's still going. I mean, I'm sure I'll use it again and again and again, but that's just one source of inspiration. I think nature, like nature, right? We all love nature. We see it from the shells and the Newport 
school of, you know, a period furniture to, I mean, it, literally everywhere. How much art is about nature? We all just love it. Mm-hmm. We love the way trees look and animals. And oh, so, <laughs> except Mary, she just wants to I'm pave the world with her industrial design. <laughs> These so if you're, people, man. You know, if you're feeling, uh, if you're feeling, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, God. Go on. <laughs> I think uh, nature's a good spot for people to start if they're feeling sort of like mm. stymied. Um, I think collaborations mm-hmm. can stimulate creativity because you're mm-hmm. allowing another human to like influence your point of view and and stir that into a pot together. Have you had that happen? Oh, for sure. I love collaborations for that exact reason. Like that they're they're stimulating, they're interesting, and. It is it for me in my experience with the people I've collaborated with, there is a great deal of freedom in, hey, we know that this is not going to be either of our specific voices. And so we run the high risk of this being a failure. But that's the fun of it, right? Like you'll you'll inevitably discover something new by collaborating, even if the piece is an absolute train wreck. Because you're you're dealing with somebody, not only somebody else's design aesthetic and design experience, but somebody else's uh, experience of of making, like their their process of crafting the object. And so, like you you learn, even if it's not the same medium as you, even if they are a, a ceramicist or a, a glass blower or whatever it is, like the way that they approach their craft can inform your own practice in a really Absolutely. interesting way. Absolutely. Now, Mary, I was thinking about architecture um, and design. You know, you you mentioned designers have like a goal. They have to like fit this design into a specific space, right? You're given a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Has Is architecture your main form of inspiration for your design? Uh, yeah, I would definitely say so. So I was thinking about this and... I realized that I realized it influences me more than I really ever thought because architecture for me, I take inspiration from my favorite architects like uh, Louis Kahn, Tadao Ando, and these like really large sweeping curves and forms. And I realized that I tend to think about things in large scale like those buildings and then kind of like miniaturize them into a furniture tangible piece. Uh, and I think that, yeah, that those elements from architecture are what I enjoy the most. So I want to incorporate them into my pieces. I think I like, there's a a fun fact is like, whenever I finish a piece, I try to take a macro photograph where it looks like those confusing perspectives Mm. that you can't tell if it's a Mm. part of a building or if it's part of your furniture. So like um, if I have like, you know, if you're thinking about like a row of columns I can take a photograph of like my last piece I did of, i had like a bunch of consecutive slats. Like I like being able to frame that photograph where it looks like, oh, is this like with the lighting, with the shadows, with the proportions, like, does this look, is this a building or is it like a small furniture piece? And I do the same thing with like my tiny scale models too. That's why I make my scale models. So I want to make sure that the proportions feel right. Um, So I think, yeah, that's, architecture is definitely my largest inspiration. I think that, there's so much brilliance out there in these large forms that people don't, they just kind of take for granted. They just, they don't really notice it. Um, especially in like the simpler ones with, you know, I don't know. I, I like Louis Kahn and his concrete or yeah. I don't know if people are, are on his yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with his name I, I per se. I think you explained it to him. Yeah. But I, he's a, uh, so he's known for uh, really reshaping what concrete can do. Um, he did really interesting large geometric forms with um, concrete in India and uh, a lot in the U.S. as well. But um, yeah, I just I think that there's something to be learned from these monuments that people just kind of walk under and don't notice because they're so much bigger than them and they don't look up that much. And I think that's yeah, we're missing that. So. Do you ever find that the creativity well runs dry? For and me? You're like, yeah. And you get like the equivalent of what is writer's block? Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And what do you if do? You my, if you saw my sketchbook, <laughs> it's literally like if you see my iPad, it's thousands of pages of like, this is terrible. But like, I need to just get all of this stuff out there. And like, 
if I have design block, then I just start sketching. It's just, and I start like putting photos on the page. And like, even if I don't like them, I just start, I force myself to like start sketching and sometimes 3D modeling and stuff like okay, that. So, and, so drawing gets you out of it. Yeah. I just need to force myself to keep going and something will happen. Sometimes it takes much longer, but that's okay. Eric, how do you get out of your block? I force myself to make something. Don't even it doesn't have to be the thing. It could be the thing. It could be like if the thing is low stakes, it could be just make the object and risk failure. Um, but if it is an object for a client or or something I can't something I need more time for and I'm not sure where to go with it, uh, I will try to stop thinking about it and I will force myself to get back into the habit of like the muscle memory of making a thing. Because something about that, for whatever reason, the way my brain works, like the moment I'm making an object, I'm, it's like this thing of like, oh yeah, I know how to fucking do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, and I might do, I might stumble across a thing. I might see a line. I might impart a line on a piece of wood where I go, oh, that's the idea for this next thing. I just, that's like, that's where it is. That's concludes the problem. Um, so it's, it's both allowing myself the space to not think about it and giving myself enough stimuli where something might spark that idea. And I go, okay, now I'm ready to start. Hmm. What about you? For, yeah. For myself, I usually, st I don't push that day. I usually like stop because I find I just waste a lot of time and get frustrated. So I like, I sleep. And then the next day, usually it just feels a little different, just magically. Mm. Um, but also looking at other artists, and I don't mean woodworkers. I mean looking at art outside of woodworking. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a mistake a lot of us make as woodworkers yeah. is we only consume a diet of other people's woodworking. How boring is that? Not mm -hmm. that their woodworking's boring. I don't I, that that wasn't a shot across the bow. But when you think about how woodworking is, but when you think about how wide the world of art is, from painting yeah. to sculpture to marble, like you know, a marble frieze, or you, you you name it, what peer you know, periods and contemporary art. If you think about how big that world is. And you just start sampling from that world and looking at objects like Mary, you were saying, make, make a note, look around you, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly you find those things wanting to creep into your own work, whether it's architecture or whether it's a painting. Sculpture. Yeah. Sculpture. sculpture. So, I mean, I, I feel like at this point we should, we should uh, sort of summarize, you know, what we've listed as our sources of design inspiration. Cause I think people like, you know, to, there's a lot of talk. So let's, let's bring it back to, so I've heard um, architecture, mm -hmm. which, which really is like other fields, other fields of art inspired yeah. design. Right. Uh, I've heard nature. Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. We all huge. know that. That's down, it's, it's so like, get, skip it's, stones. yeah. Yeah. It's so big, you know, it's such a given. I, we, I almost don't feel like we need to even talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've sculpture. heard, say it again. Sculpture. Sculpture, other yeah, forms of art. Specifically for anybody who's like looking for where do I find sculptural inspiration or visual inspiration, there's a series, the 500 series or the 400 series, depending on the books, right? 500 tables, 500 chairs. But in that series specifically, and to this point, there are two books, 500 bracelets and 500 paper forms paper sculptures something of that i can't remember exactly both of those i think are more helpful than the 500 cabinets 500 boxes 500 mm -hmm. chairs because you see these forms that are outside of woodworking and they can yes. inform the choices that you make as a woodworker and you create really interesting things that way great point yeah so look outside of woodworking um we talked about how questions can motivate design. We've talked about how collaborations can motivate new design. I would also add to it, technology can inspire design. Mm -hmm. Since I've gotten a CNC, it has definitely affected the designs I will pursue or not pursue because they were, in, they were literally intractable previously. Mm -hmm. They were unmakeable mm -hmm. until that machine came into my shop. And suddenly a whole new avenue of designs is on the table. So we can put that whole like CNC traditional woodworker bullshit to bed. <laughs> this is a ma massive design enabling 
machine. And I think it's part of every shop from now on. I agree with you. And I do think and we're not going to get into this subject right now because this is an entire episode in and of itself. <laughs> I think that is where this problem with generative AI is going to go eventually. Yeah, it is 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was when CNC's started to become a major player in this field. Everybody was freaking out that it was the end of craft, that there was no no longer going to be employed woodworkers in shops. It's all going to be computers. And 20 years later, there's still full-time woodworkers everywhere. So I think this is going to be the same thing. I, I think it's going to limit some aspects of woodworking, but I also think it's going to open up a huge range of opportunities that could be really interesting and otherwise hitherto have not been possible. Did you just say hitherto? Dropped it hitherto because you this fucking... is a podcast for elitists. Oh you God. are Mary. Mary, he called you bougie earlier. <laughs> I know, right? Excuse me. <laughs> How dare you? I'm sorry. Tier two four. Is that better? Oh my god! <laughs> you know, I'll add one. I'll add one more to the list. I think marketing and economics can also um, mm. inspire design because uh, just to, I'll, I'll give you this in ten seconds. I noticed in the everyday carry field, which is people who like you know pocket knives and trinkets and flashlights and all this, I realized there was no fine woodworking, and I was like, why not? That's weird. I'll try to make something, you know, fine woodworking, and see if it has uptick in that community. And sure enough, it did. And so by seeing a marketing opportunity or a niche that was vacant and seeing I could contribute to it, that drove my design towards everyday carry gear, which was like a whole nother thrust that I've been going on for two or three years now. So, you know, everyone's like, ah, it's all been done before. Yeah. I think it's just about your perspective. Are you looking outside yourself? Are you, you know, gobbling up art around you and talking to people and collaborating and looking, you know, uh, for opportunities? I, I, I do think there's a lot of possibility here. Yeah, I am glad that you also brought up technology because the CNC, I feel like that has a reputation for being like a production work uh, tool. And a lot of people just use it, I guess, for, you know, batching out mass production. But I think the, like people don't approach these objects as ways of exploration. And yes. I can talk about this forever because mm -hmm. I did my master's thesis on this with like 3D printing. But like CNC, think of like all of the capabilities that you can do that you can't do by hand and you can do utilizing all of those different axes and mm -hmm. like being able to push that boundary with a new tool is so much more interesting than or i don't know in my perspective than like you know like replicating something that could probably already be done by hand like it would just be slower if you're just cutting out like a simple shape but i think that I i'm glad that you have a cnc because i you love can push it with it Mary, I, I couldn't have a shop without it ever again. I've seen how much it enables creativity. And you're right. Everyone uses it to make like stupid jigs and forms, which is fine. But I think it I think it's a design tool. I love it. <laughs> I just insulted pretty much everyone yeah. in that episode. Yeah. The entirety of our listener base. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I started out offending old white men, and then you brought it home with offending people. Well, you, you, know, you know how we're going to listeners now. <laughs> Eric, you know how we're going to make it up to him? I, I have a way that we can make it up to him. We're going to oh, move on to our favorite segment, The Slide, where we feature some of the unreal thirst trap DMs that our friend Eric gets. The Slide. We're going to slow things down, draw a bath, pour some wine, light some candles, because we're sliding into Eric's DMs. Eggplant energy. God damn. Why is Vicky unreasonably good at that? Why have I never heard this voice before in my marriage? Because that shit's hot. That's hot. That's hot. So thirsty. <laughs> yeah, it's so thirsty. So today we have a message. Is it, let's see, it's, um, this time is from a, a lady, Eric. Last time it was from a man, and this uh -huh, time it's from a lady. Uh -huh. uh, Mary, get your thinking cap on right. for the after show uh, so that we can offer this poor soul some advice. <laughs> hey, Eric, your page doesn't indicate that you have a wife. Do you want one? <laughs> Woo! 
<laughs> very upfront, man. It's very straightforward. I'm horny. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, that was not the, the DM. That was that's you know what? I don't remember. It could have been. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's part of the DM without even saying it. Oh, All right. Man. On that note, uh, that's a wrap for this episode of Woodworking is Bullshit. If you'd like to join us for a discussion on uh, offering this this soul some advice, Mary's always got some uh, nice girl advice for us. Uh, join us in the after show. You can get access to the after show by subscribing to our Patreon, uh, which you can find in our info somewhere. We'll have to figure out where we post it because uh, we haven't posted it yet so I don't know where oh to say that, but you'll find uh. it we'll, we'll, we'll definitely ha- make it available in, in our intro or, or rather information uh, also in the after show we are going to be tackling a topic this week called uh, what is it now? Feature or fail that's what we call it because too often we talk about our successes so the three of us have uh, gathered up some failures from the last period of time and we're going to talk about how we fucked it all up thanks for joining and we'll talk to you next time thanks friend